morning. The sermon text for today is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. You can find this in the um, Blue Pew Bible on page 1778 or else in your own uh, Bible or whatever platform you have, tablet, phone. So listen or read along as, as we look into God's word here. A prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more then all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is, in work, that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Here ends today's reading. Just put it on there. Thanks, Tracy. Morning, everybody. I'm so flattered by everyone's kindness. Let me just say thank you. The the, the encouragement, the, the those small uh, kind things that people say, especially on Sundays when we gather together, they really do go a long way. So I, I really appreciate all the things you said, Peter, and, and all the uh, encouragement that you guys give on a regular basis as well. Um, I serve as one of the pastors here. My name is Matt, pastor of equipping and community development. I'm glad to be getting into uh, this with you. Today we're continuing uh, our walk through Psalm 1 in our sermon series here. What we have been doing is we have been going through Psalm 1 and looking at the primary message of it and the primary themes of it. Uh, and then we have been taking those themes and asking ourselves, okay, where are those uh, reinforced and, and, and supplemented in other passages of Scripture? And so today we're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians 3. But one of the things that we've been doing as a church family is we've been taking time to memorize Psalm 1 together. We believe there's something valuable and formative to storing up God's word uh, in our hearts. And so we are going to do some reinforcement today as we, we read through uh, Psalm 1 together as a church family. So would you stand with me as we read God's word? And we'll say Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose life does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff 
that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Great, thanks for reading that with me. Go ahead and have a seat. Today we're going to focus specifically in what it says in verse 3 here, where it says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now many of you have probably not thought about yourself as being like a tree before. However, when we read the scriptures, what we find is that the association between people and trees or types of plants is actually really strong. There's tons of connections between them. Just a few examples that come to mind are uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. What is their conundrum? They are given a choice between eating from one of two, what? Trees, right? When we jump all the way to the New Testament and, and Paul is navigating the, the, the relations between Jews and Gentiles, the description he uses is that they are like an olive tree, when we get to Revelation and we see the new creation, which is much like Eden, except it's like a city, we see that there's a river that runs through it, and right in there we also see the tree of life. And this could go on and on with this plant and human imagery going back and forth. So when we read Psalm 1 and it says that the blessed one is one who is like a tree, this is something that's familiar to the biblical authors. But not only does it say that the blessed one is any tree, it says they are like a tree planted by streams of water. In other words, they are a tree that is thriving. So my question for you this morning is this. Are we like this tree? I want us to ask ourselves, am I the one who is blessed? And I think the way that we discern this is by asking ourselves one more question. Where am I planted? Where am I planted? It's no uh, secret that there's no shortage of places for us to, to put our roots down, is there? There are so many things that are not only vying for, for our attention, or trying to, to get a hold of us, but they're actually asking for us to invest ourselves in their mission and values. And the challenge that we face in our world is asking where are those appropriate places where I am supposed to lay down roots. And the reason why this is so important is this, is because where we lay down our roots not only impacts us on a, a personal note, it not only impacts our own emotional and spiritual and physical well-being, but it also impacts the type of fruit that we actually bear at the end of the day. And this actually comes up in the latter part of verse 3 of Psalm 1. So today I want to ask us this. Are we appropriately rooted and grounded? Because there's quite a bit on the line, I would argue, and the text would argue, if we are not so in the text that we're focusing in today, Ephesians 3, Paul is going to kind of give us a little bit of direction on this. Okay, he's going to ultimately tell us the, the answer that many of us probably know, that God is the ultimate place where we should be grounding ourselves at the end of the day. But he makes the case that as we do this, we find this inexhaustible stream of love in him. And that is where we are going to find true nourishment through all other situations. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump right into the latter part of Ephesians 3. So let's pray together. Father, you're the giver of life, and you are the originator of love. Lord, the, the scriptures say that you are love. As we read your word this morning, Lord, we desire to experience your love poured out on us. 
especially as we are reminded of your son's great love and sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, please lead us in this time. Help us to understand today's text well. And would you make us into a people by your spirit who love you and others well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to just jump right in to Ephesians 3. When we look at the beginning of our text today, I want you to look at verse 14 with me. In the beginning of verse 14, you will see a phrase. It says, for this reason. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, go up to verse 1 of chapter 3. You'll see another special phrase there. You might actually notice that it's the same one. It says, for this reason. So here's what we see happens in chapter 3 of Ephesians. We see that Paul begins a thought. He's so caught up in God's goodness that he needs to go on this tangent about what God has done. And then back in verse 14, he actually picks up the thought that he began in the beginning of the chapter. That's kind of how Paul works. Have you noticed that when you read some of his letters? Sometimes he stops in the middle of a sentence and then he picks up somewhere else. But he says, for this reason, when we begin. And so this should lead us to the question, for what reason, Paul? For what reason? What, what is it, Paul, that is informing this chain of thought in the sermon text today? And to understand this, we have to go back just a little bit further to, t- to chapter 2. So bear with me in this. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul describes this specific and amazing work that God has done. He says that people have not only been saved by grace through faith in the Messiah, but there are actually two different groups in the world that can be saved by the Messiah. There are Jews, and then there are Gentiles, non-Jews. And he says both of them can be equally saved through what Jesus has done. But Paul also says that he has not only saved them to himself— but he has saved them into relationship with one another. And he calls this a mystery in the beginning of chapter 3. He says this is something that God's people had not known was going to happen, and yet he has made it known to God's people in their present. That not only could Jews become part of God's family through the Messiah, but all people could come to God through Jesus. And Paul says that in this, the wisdom of God is put on display. And what's amazing is he uses this really specific language, rulers, powers, and authorities. Whenever Paul uses that in scripture, it's not referring primarily to human beings. It's relating primarily to spiritual beings. So here's what he's saying, that this unity of these two groups in the Messiah is not only a witness to us and to the rest of the world, but he's saying that it is actually a cosmic witness to all of creation of his brilliance and of the thing that he had planned out that we had not seen coming. So with all of that background, all of that going on in his mind, the text that we're looking at today shows us that Paul is rightfully led to a place of prayer. Ephesians 3.14 and on is not just a transition from orthodoxy, right, belief, to orthopraxy, how we should properly respond, it's actually an expression, an overflow of Paul's praise. And so as we look at verse 14, here's what he says. I kneel before the Father, a a prayer posture, right, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
So he begins by addressing God, his heavenly father, who he knows intimately. He also refers to him as the father, the, the one from, from who originated in all things, from whom every person derives their name. Now, in the ancient world, what we have to understand is names were not just what you called somebody, but to name something was an assertion of one's defining your identity. It was an assertion of one's authority. So Paul is bowing, yes, before the God who he knows in relationship, but he's also making a claim that he is speaking to the one through whom everything that exists defines its very existence and identity. And it's in this that the heartbeat of the text comes out. Here's what I want us to see this morning in Paul's prayer, that God desires us to be a people who are completely grounded in his life and love, not just affiliated with it, but completely grounded in it. And as we dive into this, we're gonna be grounded in that life and love in two ways. The first way is that we prayerfully pursue intimacy with Christ. We prayerfully pursue intimacy with Christ. Look at what he says in, in 16 and in the beginning of verse 17. He begins his prayer by saying, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what we'll see in Paul's prayer is that he wants them to be strengthened for different reasons. And the first reason that he wants them to be strengthened today is is that, that by the spirit, Christ would dwell inside of them. What he's asking for is that the spirit would meet them on an intimate level. He uses, uh, literally in the Greek, he says that, that the spirit would dwell in your inner man, on, in the most deepest recesses of who they are. He wants the spirit to meet them there so that they can know that Christ is dwelling in their hearts, what he has done for them, so that they can trust him with, with, with utmost uh, uh, relinquishing of all that they are. And when we think about this language of hearts in scripture, whether it's in the Hebrew or in the Greek, what happens is whenever the scriptures talk about the hearts, it has to do with the seat of one's emotions. It is the place where one's passions are said to lie. And so when he says that he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith, here's what he's praying, that they would have such a deep experience of who Jesus is, of the relationship that they have with him, that it would not only transform what they know, that it would not only transform the relationship, it would transform their very passions, the type of people that they actually become, what they desire at the end of the day. And as we hear this, I just want us to think of this in light of what Paul has already said in the letter of Ephesians. Whenever we're looking at this, it's really helpful to look at this in context and who these people see themselves as being. Because, because Paul had told them in chapter two that they were dead. That they were dead. That, that the only thing, in fact, that they deserved from God by nature of who they are was his wrath. And yet he goes on to say, guys, you have been thoroughly rescued by this Messiah. He tells them that God was unwilling to leave them without hope. He tells them that they have been united to the very one who sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And because of this, they have a new identity. They are given a new name as his children. And God has called them to live at peace with others who have trusted in this Messiah. And this is that work that I said, that people for 1,500 years did not know was coming, and now they do. And here's what he prays, that their affections would line up with what they now know about what God has done. He wants what they feel to line up with what they know. It's kind of shocking to me 
when I read this, of all the things that Paul could pray in light of what he knows about God's plan and what he said in chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, it's shocking to me that this is what he prays. He doesn't tell them, here's something specific to do as a result of Christ's work. He doesn't continue kind of pontificating on all of the implications of his deep theology. He prays that their theology would lead to doxology. He prays that what they know about God would simply lead to them worshiping and trying to deepen the experience of the bond that they share. I think this is really relevant for us as we kind of consider our own walk with God. Because what we see in this is that God calls us to have a complete or a, a whole relationship with him. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Depending on who you are, or maybe the, the, the church tradition you have grown up in, some of us are maybe a little bit more head-heavy or heart-heavy in our walk with God. For those of us who are a little bit more uh, heart-heavy in our walk with him, we process our relationship with God through oftentimes emotional intimacy. We feel what God has done for us, right? For those of us who are a little bit more head-heavy, we process our relationship with God oftentimes through intellectual intimacy. You feel close to the Lord as you continue to, to know something about him, to, to learn something new about his, his word. If I'm honest, that's actually the camp that I usually fall into. And, and let me say this, neither of those is bad. All of us do both of those, but some of us lean a little bit more on the continuum one way than the other. But when we look at today's text, Paul's desire is that they would be complete, that they would know that God has done this for them, and that they would begin to feel as a result of that. I also think there's one more meaningful application to be found in this, and it's this, that no matter who we are, we all desire to be loved and we all desire to be known. But I think all of us know that, that, that there are certain parts of us that are probably more lovable than others, don't we? Right? There's parts of us that we look at and we say, oh yeah, people could appreciate that about me. People, people could get into that. People could be committed to me if, if they knew the, these good qualities about myself. But there's other parts, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that it's really hard to believe that anybody could love, that anybody could accept. In fact, sometimes what we find is the hardest person to love is not the person next to us, right? It's, it's ourselves because we honestly know ourselves. But just... Listen to this language, Paul says. He wants the spirit to strengthen them in their inner being. In their inner being. He wants the spirit to empower them and strengthen them, warts and all, to experience nearness with God. The point is this, that the parts of us that we hold back from others, the parts that we kind of forget to try and protect ourselves from about ourselves, the parts that we hold back from God because we, we fear rejection, those are the very parts that the Lord wants to speak into, that he wants to meet with the gospel truth. And what we actually find practically is when we expose those to God, that is where we find the deepest transformation. So it makes complete sense that this is Paul's prayer for them, that they would have an experience of God in their inner being. So if they're gonna be grounded in God's love, they have to first pursue intimacy and experience that intimacy with Christ. The second thing that he prays is this, that they would ground themselves in the truth of his inexhaustible love. So he moves from talking about their, their relationship, this intimacy with Christ, to the very nature of Christ's love. 
So he, t- he prayed that they'd be strengthened to experience intimacy. Now he prays that they'd be strengthened, not only that he'd dwell in their hearts, but that they could comprehend and taste the vastness of what God's love is like for them. And technically speaking, it, it's kind of uh, funny as we read this, because what he actually says is that he wants them to comprehend how incomprehensible God's love is, right? The, the only thing that he wants them to know is that they actually can't know how great this love is. It's actually far too great for them to wrap their minds around. But Paul wants this love, at least on some level, generally speaking, to be something that they know. And when we read about knowledge, that someone would know somebody in the scriptures, sometimes it's a knowledge claim, but oftentimes it's about being acquainted with it. Right? Paul wants them to be acquainted with God's love, not loosely affiliated with it. And as I hear that, that's really convicting for me. To be honest, it's really challenging. It's easy for me to affirm on a, on a head level, right? To, to say, yeah, I know God loves me. But that's a different thing to begin seeking to comprehend like the breadth and the width and like how deep is that love that the Father has for us. And the result of this, Paul's hope, is, is that they would be filled, as he says, with all of the fullness of God. He actually utilizes imagery of God's temple. That just as the temple was filled with God's glory, now he would fill them with his love. Observe with me also some of the language here in verse 17. Look in your Bibles. It says he wants them to know Christ's love by being rooted and established in it. He talks about them being grounded deeply. Like tree roots. This is very Psalm 1-esque language, right? The blessed man, the blessed one, is the one who is he's deeply rooted in God. And the manner in which he wants them to do this is to be established, or some translations would say grounded. He wants them to have a firm, not a, a loose connection to who God is. And here's the challenge that the, this poses here. That Paul is praying this for everybody. He is praying this for the entire church, And I think the challenge is that it's easy for us to imagine that some hyper-spiritual, the people that are are really taking the time to spend with God would have this understanding of God's love. But that's not what he prays. He prays that every single one of us would experience the depth and the width and the breadth and the vastness of God's affections for them. To use psalm language, Paul's prayer is that not just some of us, but every single one of us would be the blessed one. And that hits hard in light of where we're at in the book of Ephesians. Because hear what he says to these people in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul tells them, friends, you were the outsiders. If there was anyone who should have felt unlovable, it was you. And yet what he says next completely shatters that concept. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in today's text, Paul's plea to God, his prayer to them, 
is that those who have in fact been brought near by the blood of Jesus would realize just how incredible that love is that has brought them near in the first place, that has drawn them close. And as we think about grounding ourselves in God's love, I want us to think about something. I want us to think about what I call the uh, threshold of love. We all have this, and here's what I mean by this. We all have a line where we think love for another person or even love for ourselves should end. We all internally have this thing inside of us that says, I think this type of life is worthy of my affections and my commitments. But someone living this type of life, that would be really hard for me to commit myself to. This type of person is worthy of my love. But what if they act like this? What if they do this? What if they reject me? What if they treat me poorly? And the reality is we all have this threshold where we at least feel like lovability ends. And this threshold is different for all of us, but, but we all have this line that we tend to draw. And this can exist with regard to other people, and I think it also exists with regard to ourselves, where we say, okay, I can believe that people will love me to this point. And yet here's my line. And once I cross that line, I don't think anyone could ever love me. I don't think that anybody could ever accept me. And I just want to name this, that that threshold is a mark of how finite and broken and sinful we are at the end of the day. Because what Paul communicates is that that is completely foreign to the love of God. What we see in Ephesians is that God's love transcends those barriers. That line that we draw in the sand, God says, that doesn't exist for me. My love crosses that every single day of the week. Now, that doesn't mean that his love will keep us the same, right? Love is not uh, inexhaustible acceptance without changing. In fact, what we find is that God's love changes us to reflect his goodness. But what we find is that his love goes to great lengths for his people. And that it is deep and it is wide and, it is, and the thing that we are to know is that we cannot know how great it is. And it is not dependent on us. That is the best news that we can hear. If you remember one thing this morning, I, I need you to hear this, that God's love is not dependent on your worthiness to receive that love. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. God's love is not dependent on your worthiness to receive that love. In fact, what we find in the scriptures is that if there was ever a time where we were actually worthy of God's love, we forfeited that one long ago. Right, Because the Bible story tells us that God gave us a line of obedience and super quickly we decided to cross it. Right? If you have little ones, you understand there comes an age where like, they're like, okay, when can I start stepping over that line? Right? We cross that very quickly. We are not a people that are marked by consistent, deep, and abiding love for God. What we find, if we, we're honest with ourselves, is that we are in fact marked oftentimes by a love for ourselves a love for our preferences, a love for other things, a love for other people, but oftentimes not a love for God that is transformative. And oftentimes we take those things and we supplement what only God can truly provide for us. To summarize the story of the, the entire scriptures, it's a story of conflicting and contrasting loves. 
right? It's a story about God who is loving and faithful to his people and a people that are not loving back and oftentimes usually very, very compromised. And the result of this, the scriptures tell us, is not just that we're not who we should be. The scriptures say that we are a people who are dying, that we are like a tree whose roots are dug deep into poison and we are sucking on it and we are just loving it. We are feeding on things that not only can't satisfy us, but they can't sustain our life. And this is our condition. And it's into this darkness that the gospel speaks this morning. It's into this condition that we celebrate and remember the good news of what God has done for us. It's in this that we remember that God's love is not dependent on that condition. That God's love is not dependent on our compromise. That God's love is not dependent on our worthiness to receive that love. Remember, it's actually despite our rebellion, right? Despite that compromise that God chose to love us. And he demonstrated that by taking on flesh in Jesus by living a life for us, a perfect life, and by dying and rising in our place. So an incredible demonstration of love we have in Jesus. Just think about that for a minute with me. Think about how this plays out. We choose to live for ourselves and go our own way, and what does God do? He chooses to take on flesh and live for us and chase us down. That's the story of the scriptures, right? We're compromised and God is faithful. And so today, as always, he invites us to plant ourselves in him through faith, to experience that grace and love, to trust in him for who he is and what he has done. And he promises us by his spirit that he would nourish us and form us to be those who are like the blessed one of Psalm 1, to make us into the people who delight and meditate on God's law who choose to reject evil and wickedness and cling to the God who is by very nature good. And he promises to make us a people who desire him above all others. By his spirit, the gospel transforms us to be a people who who reflect his own love instead of the categories of love that we see in our world and that we come up with ourselves. He helps us to see that in Christ, nobody is unlovable. He prevents us from saying, I will love this person if blank. And instead, he calls us to be a people who says, because he loved me, I will love, period. Full stop. So as we come to the table today, I want to just ask us three questions to process God's love. The first question is for you if you are a feeler, okay? If you process your relationship with God through emotional intimacy, What does it look like for you to pursue understanding the vastness of God's love? There's lots of ways we do this. I would encourage you to start with scripture and to do it in a community of people, okay? Second one is for those of us who are are thinkers. How should you feel based on what you know to be true of God's love? Sometimes with me, I, I struggle with that. I, I, I tend to try and learn a lot about God and, and about his word, but I don't actually take the time to think about how should this shape my posture towards God and towards others? So how should we feel about what you know to be true of God's love? And like I said, we all think and we all feel, but some of us more than others. And what I think is beautiful about Paul's prayer is that it has something for us to both feel and understand with regard to God. So here's our final question. What seemingly unlovable part of you might Christ want 
to love on today. What seemingly unlovable part of you might Christ want to show his love to today? As we close, I just want you to hear this, that you are not unlovable. No matter what, no matter your season of life that you're in, no matter how useful or useless you feel, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've done, no matter even now what you are doing in rebellion against your maker, you are loved, not for your own sake, but for Christ's. And you are invited to turn to him, to lay down those roots in his love. In fact, to bring it back to Jesus, the scriptures will describe what Jesus did in his crucifixion by saying that he was crucified on a tree, right? So we'll sum it up like this as we come to the table. That Christ hung on a tree for you so that you might grow like a thriving tree in him. Christ hung on a tree for you so that you might grow up into a thriving tree in him. I want us to sit with that, to take a moment of silence, to consider the questions. I'll go back to the questions that you can see them if you want to reflect on them for a moment. There you go. Let's take a moment of silence and we'll pray in light of what we've heard from God's word. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess today especially that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess that it is so easy for us to love other people, things, ourselves more than we love you. And we've seen the result of that. We've seen the brokenness of that and the destruction that comes along with that. We've seen what happens when selfishness instead of selflessness marks who we are and our world, our societies. And Lord, we desire deep transformation. You promise by your spirit that you will change our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And so Lord, we come to you today and we ask that you would make that so in us that you would make that a reality in our lives, not just for our sake and not just for our community's sake, but for the sake of Christ's glory. We pray that you would fulfill this promise to us so that what he has done might be seen readily throughout our world. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been and would you help us to amend what we are? Would you heal us? And then would you direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways? to the glory of your name. And all of God's people said, amen.